Welcome to Shine. I'm all about friendly, soul-nourishing, spiritually inspired conversations that expand perspectives and offer practical guidance so you can live joyfully and shine brightly. I believe your experiences are a result of the perspective you bring to your circumstances. If you expand your perspective, you can transform your life. I believe everyone has something special within them, a unique gift, a light you are to find and share with the world. You are meant to shine. I believe you are meant to live with complete joy and peace, nothing less. It's just awaiting your allowing. Ready to get to it? Here we go. Hey there, I'm excited about this episode, Well-Being Part 2. Welcome. This episode picks up where episode 30 left off. If you missed the last episode, you might want to listen to it first. You see, recently I completed this course taught by Dr. Lori Santos at Yale University called The Science of Wellbeing. There were so many gems from this course, I just had to share some of the big ones, all in the hopes that they can bring more well-being into your life. So in the last episode, we talked about how we have many misconceptions about the things we think will bring us joy and fulfillment. We have the benefit now of so much fantastic research around this topic, and it tells us that when it comes to our, quote, happiness, we miss want. Our minds are focused on the wrong stuff. So when we think about the things that we want, presumably to make us feel better, things like more money, a better body, the perfect partner, a grander lifestyle, research has revealed that they don't make us as happy as we might think. We talked about two of the big reasons research has found this to be true. First, we talked about this idea of reference points, that we don't think in terms of absolutes, but we think instead in relative terms. So our mind is constantly making all these judgments about what we think we want based on social comparisons or other things we see. So we base our well-being, evaluate and judge our own happiness, on these irrelevant reference points not tied to anything absolute. They have no foundation or basis. They're just relative to what other people have or what we see around us. So I cracked up at this example Dr. Santos shared in this course. This researcher asked people to predict how happy potato chips would make them. So imagine you have this fresh basket of potato chips in front of you. You are asked to predict on a scale how happy you're going to be after eating them. Then he changed the contrast points. It turns out you're almost twice as likely to enjoy those potato chips more next to a can of sardines and enjoy them less if you eat them next to a chocolate cake. Same potato chip, different reference points. These are reference points in action, and it happens with potato chips, it happens with cars, houses, jobs, where your kid goes to college. All these things, all equally irrelevant. Wow, right? So it's no wonder that focusing our energy and attention on attaining these things we think we want doesn't make us as happy as we might expect. Sure, there might be an initial boost in feeling good, but eventually we are subject to this thing called hedonic adaptation. We get used to the things we acquire and it becomes our new normal. 
this was the second thing that we really focused on in the last episode. So what we do is we adapt to it and the sense of well-being doesn't endure. Instead, it's replaced with, well, the next thing. And we reset our reference points again. Then we talked about the work of Martin Seligman from UPenn about character strengths, shifting our attention from these external things that we believe will bring us happiness and instead focusing our attention internally, valuing who we are. So each of us has signature character strengths, and I shared a link last episode to the character strength survey. So now you know what yours are. Yay! You understand now the best parts of your personality and the characteristics within you that make you feel most energized and engaged. So in this episode, we are going to dive into how you can amp up your well-being with proven strategies you can use to focus on the things that do work. Okay, so this is all about solutions. All right. So let's start with those reference points that we talked about before. How do we manage them? Because they're always there. You can't avoid them. Santos shared three strategies. One, concrete re-experiencing. Two, concrete observing. And three, ways to manage those social comparisons. So first, let's get to what we can do. First on these concrete re-experiencing. This is the idea that you go back and remind yourself of the old reference points. Because the tricky thing about reference points is they seem to always be on the move, right? So you lose your perspective. You take where you currently are for granted. You forget how far you've come because you're focusing on where you wanna go. So remember that example I shared last time of the Olympics, right? That silver medalist was bummed out because he didn't get the gold. But if he went back and reminded himself that his dream was to just one day compete in the Olympics. Just being on the team was a dream, right? Concrete re-experiencing helps you find more joy and appreciation for where you are because you recognize how far you've come, right? You're not looking at where you want to go. You're looking at how far you've come. There's great, great appreciation in that, okay? So that's concrete re-experiencing. The second is concrete observing. This is finding a reference point that isn't as good as your current situation. So using this same example of the Olympics, that medalist could consider what it would have been like to not medal at all, or for that matter, being injured or not at the Olympics altogether, right? So observing your circumstance from a different reference point can change the way you feel about your circumstance. The other way concrete observing can work is to actually see what you think you want so badly. When you consider all you have to do and sacrifice to attain that thing you're working toward, sometimes seeing it firsthand can often make you realize, well, it isn't all that it's cracked up to be, right? So that's the other component of this idea of concrete observing. All right, the third way and strategy to manage these reference points is thinking about how we manage these social comparisons. There are a few techniques for this. One is the stop technique. This is a cognitive behavioral therapy strategy. I call it a heightened level of consciousness. Observing, noticing when you are doing this, when you're finding yourself comparing your situation to somebody else's. 
This is about breaking the pattern, stopping that thinking in its tracks. The other strategy for managing social comparisons is gratitude. Because when you are appreciative of what you have, you aren't focused on what you don't have. We're going to talk about this more in a bit. Then finally, it's managing the input. I mean, we allow all the stuff in when we open our social feeds, right? So being aware and intentional of what you're inviting in, it not only affects those reference points, but it affects the way you feel in general. So managing those reference points, re-experiencing them, that is a reminding yourself of where you are, how far you've come, concrete observing, this is changing your reference points to something maybe less favorable, or seeing firsthand what it is that you've convinced yourself you want so badly, because it isn't always all that it's cracked up to be. And finally, managing those social comparisons by noticing when you're doing it and stopping it in its tracks, turning down the volume of input, managing how much time you're spending on those social channels, and gratitude, which I think is the panacea for all things, in my opinion. Okay, so let's get on to how to thwart hedonic adaptation. Remember, hedonic adaptation is a process of becoming accustomed to things. Those things we work so hard to acquire because we think they're going to make us happy. Well, once we get them, we get used to them and their contribution to our happiness fades. We adapt and pretty quickly, it turns out. This has been shown to apply to marriage, getting a great job, getting lots of money, getting into the college of your dreams, buying all this stuff, right? So let's start with all that stuff first. The worst culprit of our hedonic adaptation? Things. Yep, because they stick around. That big house, that great car, turns out we get bored with them. We get used to them. The longer they last, the more time we have to get used to them being around. So what are we to do? Well, there are some great strategies, thankfully. So the first is savoring, the act of stepping out of your experience to be mindful of it. So multitasking is the enemy of savoring. So you can be eating lunch while working or thinking through something, or you can quiet that mind and allow yourself to enjoy what you're eating, savoring it, right? You can be checking your email, for instance, while your daughter's playing with her friends in the park, or you can watch her taking it all in, all that laughter and joy she's experiencing, and just let that wash over you, right? And to get even more benefit, if you share that experience with someone, how good it made you feel, how much you enjoyed it, all the better. And that can be shared not just immediately, but recalling it, remembering that moment some point in the future extends the joy and contributes to your well-being as well. So savoring forces you to notice and enjoy the experience, and it extends the experience even longer so you don't get bored with it, thwarting hedonic adaptation. All right. The second thing we can do to manage this hedonic adaptation is negative visualization. So the best example of this um, is that movie. Have you ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? Of course you have. Everyone's seen that. Where George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, sees what it would have been like if he didn't exist. What would it have been like if something didn't happen? So researchers tested this with couples. The first group of couples was asked to write for 15 minutes about how they might 
never have met their partner. The second group of couples was the control group. They were asked simply to write about how they met. The happiness rating was an entire point higher for the couples that contemplated how their relationship might not have been. Okay, similarly, thinking about losing something also works in a related way. The idea that you don't realize how important something is until you no longer have it. So thinking about something being gone is also an effective way to pop yourself out of hedonic adaptation. I think of hedonic adaptation as the state where you take things for granted. We just get used to things, even people we love. Okay, and one of the most powerful ways of thwarting hedonic adaptation is gratitude. Being appreciative of the things you have, feeling a genuine sense of thankfulness. Emmons and McCullough, these researchers, did this famous study trying to understand this. They wanted to understand if gratitude actually correlated to your sense of well-being. So they asked subjects to do something super simple. They said to think back over the past week and write five things you're grateful for. They can be big things, they can be tiny things, whatever. Write five things. They asked separate subjects to list five things that were hassles over the past week. And the third and final group was a control group. And they just asked them to write five things that happened the past week without any prompts about whether they were good or bad. Just whatever. What, what happened this week? So this was the result. After doing this just once, so for one week, after one week, they were asked just once to write this list of five things. This is how the simple exercise affected their well-being. When comparing these three groups, the group that made the gratitude list rated higher in terms of thinking their life as a whole was going better. They were more optimistic about how the upcoming week was going to go. And interestingly, those that were sick or had something bothering them physically reported fewer symptoms when feeling grateful. This gratitude group also reported participating in almost a full hour more of exercise just for feeling grateful. That's something, huh? So gratitude has far-reaching effects in all parts of our life. Then there was a study where Seligman orchestrated a gratitude visit. He asked subjects, in the next week, write a letter of gratitude to someone who has helped you or has been especially kind to you, but who has never properly been thanked. Then deliver that letter in person. The letter didn't need to be elaborate. It could have been just a simple thank you. But this is what he found. Reported happiness increased 50% immediately following the test. And the feeling of well-being among these subjects lasted for almost six months for this one act of gratitude. Wow. There's great power and not just feeling grateful, but actively expressing gratitude to others. Gratitude works in relationships, expressing how grateful you are to your partner. And it works in the workplace too. In one study, supervisors wrote personal notes to call center volunteer fundraisers. The supervisor thanked them in a personal note for their hard work. And the result, those that received the note stayed longer. Remember, this is volunteer call center, right? They made, the people that received the note made 50% more calls than those that did not receive the note. That is crazy, right? That's just a demonstration of the power of gratitude. 
one final remedy for hedonic adaptation is to invest in experiences. Trips, concerts, uh, delicious dessert. The one thing these things have in common, you don't have time to adapt to them. Researcher Dan Gilbert said, quote, I love this, a new car sticks around to disappoint you. <laughs> but a trip to Europe is over. It evaporates. It has the good sense to go away and you are left with nothing but a wonderful memory. <laughs> so are people who invest in experiences actually happier? There's this large body of research that studied just this thing. It revealed that, yes, when thinking about experiences, people were happier thinking about it, happier remembering or recalling their experience, and were happier investing in it. They thought that was money well spent. And while material things did bring some level of happiness on all measures, they were lower than the happiness brought by experiences. And this held true across different socioeconomic populations and importantly, over time. So investing in experiences is one of the best ways to thwart hedonic adaptation because you never get used to them or bored with them. They end before you can adapt to them. But this isn't the only reason experiences are such an excellent strategy for contributing to our well-being. Turns out when you share your experiences with others, people, those people that you share these experiences with, resonate more strongly with you when you share your experiences versus your purchases. So experiences are fun to share with others and others enjoy the sharing of that experience. So there was a study where they tracked the adjectives people use after someone shared information with them. And I giggled at this. When people shared materialistic purchases, 33% of the respondents said the person who shared it with them was self-centered or selfish. <laughs> but when they shared an experience, 33% described the person as humorous and friendly. <laughs> that was funny, huh? So people like you more. Huh? Anyways, but here's one final and meaningful reason. In 2009, Howland Hill, these researchers, did an extensive study on the benefits of experiential versus material purchases. And was, as with the other studies that we just talked about, they did find that people felt their money was well spent. They felt their experiential purchases made them happier than their material purchases. But this study went further. They found that experiences were less susceptible to social comparison and envy when compared to material purchases. So it's easier to compare your car to someone else's and more difficult to compare your trips, for instance. So experiences don't seem to contribute to that reference point mess as much as material purchases do. But this is the one I like the most. This study found that not only did the experiential purchases make you happier, but they made other people happier too. Either because they shared in that experience directly or they just enjoyed listening to the stories that came out of it. Love all that stuff. Okay, so last but not least, let's get to those signature strengths. Now that you know what yours are, now you can understand why they're so essential to understand within yourself. So remember Martin Seligman, he was that psychologist and UPenn professor that defined signature strengths as those character strengths most essential to who you are. If you can put those strengths into action, this is when you will be at your best, feel yourself flourishing the most, and when you feel you're living with purpose and meaning. I wanted you to understand what your 
signature strengths are because of all the research that was covered in this course. The use of your signature strengths had one of the most substantial positive effects on your well-being. In one study, subjects were asked to use one of their top strengths in a new and different way every day for one week. Using them in another way pops you out of that hedonic adaptation, right? So you're not just being kind the way you always are kind, right? You get more benefit from exercising these strengths in different ways. And this is what they found. Subjects' reported happiness level not only bumped up dramatically, but unlike some of the other happiness strategies, the level of happiness stayed at that higher elevated level for one month, three months, even six months out, which was as long as the study measured. But even more astounding, when looking at depressive symptoms, the results were even more dramatic on subjective well-being. Putting signature strengths into action significantly reduced feeling depressed. Again, one week, one month, three months, even six months out for as long as a study measured. And the reported incidence of depressive symptoms remained at that low level throughout the entire testing period. That's pretty crazy, I thought. So given the powerful effect of signature strengths on our well-being, what would that mean if we applied that understanding of our signature strengths in other ways, like, for instance, to our work? So another set of researchers explored this very question. They did an extensive study asking subjects to take the strengths test, and then they asked these workers if they used their strengths at work, and if so, which ones. Then they measured job satisfaction, productivity, and positive affect. They found that those who used their strengths at work had a far higher correlation to positive emotions at work, which resulted in them having higher productivity and feeling a far greater job satisfaction level. So intentionally using these strengths makes your job more enjoyable. When we think about what we do for our work, all the time we spend there, right? If salary increases aren't what contributes to our well-being, and we learned this in the last episode, then what does? What does contribute to our sense of happiness, which is a pleasant life, an engaged life, a meaningful life? I think about this particularly as it relates to my son as he enters these new chapters in his life. This was a study I found really intriguing. So Harzer and Roosh, these researchers, wondered what makes people think that their job is a calling? I thought that was an awesome question. They learned that as the number of strengths you use increases, so too do reports of positive affect, with the sweet spot being four. So if you can use four of your top seven signature strengths, you get an outsized boost in your well-being, and you are likely to think of your job as a true calling filled with meaning and purpose. Who doesn't want that? Now that you know your signature strengths, you can find ways to put them to use. And why wouldn't you? If you want to optimize your well-being, put those signature strengths to use. And when it comes to finding a vocation or a job, think about those that will allow you to use your signature strengths. And deliberately taking this into consideration as you're making these choices will make all the difference. You not only will perform at your best, you will find more enjoyment and fulfillment 
and what you are doing and how you are spending your time. Now, I promised I would share what the results were of my character strength survey. So here they are in order kindness, love, spirituality, gratitude, fairness, and hope. Yep, I kind of felt like, yeah, that's right on. I am so grateful for the work I'm able to do every day. And I know I am doing exactly what I am meant to do. I know I am exactly where I am meant to be. I do feel that I'm called to the work that I do. And I do feel like it is why I am here. And I absolutely love it. So I have long believed that the strategies for a more joyful life include three main things. One, living in the present. Because a great thing about living in the present moment, worry and regret can't live there, right? Worry and regret can't live in the moment. There are always things about the future, always things about the past. When you live in the present, it's all good. Two, living with appreciation and gratitude, especially for all the love and kindness all around you. And finally, living as you truly are, shining your beautiful, bright light quieting the external expectations and embracing your life and living your life, honoring what makes you special. No one can be you and the world needs you. Savoring, living with gratitude, using your signature strengths. This is all about the path to well-being and sharing what makes you special with others. If you want to learn more about the science of well-being, Dr. Lori Santos hosts this great podcast called The Happiness Lab. You should definitely check it out. I hope you were able to take away some valuable things from all of this. Living a joyful, fulfilling, peaceful life is what well-being is all about. And here is to yours. Thanks for joining me today. Be kind and share those beautiful signature strengths of yours. Not only are they going to be great for your own well-being, but the world needs them. Until next time, take it easy.